Welcome to the Masters in Psychology podcast, where psychology students can learn from psychologists, educators, and practitioners to better understand what they do, how they got there, and hear the advice they have for those interested in getting a graduate degree in psychology. I'm your host, Brad Schumacher, and today we welcome Dr. Stephen C. Hayes to the show. Dr. Hayes is a Nevada Foundation Professor of Psychology and Behavior Analysis program at the University of Nevada, Reno. He is an author of 47 books, including Get Out of Your Mind and Into Your Life, which was the best-selling self-help book in the U.S. for a time, and his new book, Learning Process-Based Therapy. Dr. Hayes is especially known for his work on acceptance and commitment therapy, or ACT. Google Scholar Data ranks him among the top 935 highest-impact living scholars worldwide in all areas of study. And research.com lists him as the 63rd highest impact psychologist in the world. Today, we will learn more about his academic and professional journey, more about ACT, and what he did as a freshman in college to make the entire cafeteria crowd at Loyola University stand up and clap. Dr. Hayes, welcome to our podcast. Well, I'm really happy to be here. <laughs> Looking forward to the conversation. Well, I appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule. I read somewhere that you decided to become a psychologist in high school because it combined art and science, and you loved both. Can you tell me a little bit more about this? And was there anything in particular that sparked your interest in psychology? Well, I, I think I was interested in psychology in part because of this, the suffering I saw around me. I think many people get involved with psychology either because they have a sense within themselves or in their family or others they see you know that there's a need for this knowledge but the reason why that sort of art science side is that i was really interested in in literature and and stories and and things of that kind of edited the literary magazine in college actually even after becoming a psych major uh, but i also thought you know is you know shakespeare less of a playwright than a modern playwright no no i couldn't really see much progressivity i could see the importance of it but i couldn't really see the progressivity of art and literature and i wanted to do something that would you know make a difference going forward and to me science looked like it was the most progressive thing that we know how to do is a human invention uh, and that so being able to sort of put those two together, I've sort of made the little promise that I was going to be the a person who could figure out to take what's deeply important about art and literature and human complexity seen that way and bring it in to uh, evidence-based approaches so that, um, you know, we do a better job of uh, empowering people to live the kind of lives that they want to live. Well, one of the things that I enjoyed doing the research about you is that you are not afraid. You're actually very proactive in sharing your research and your findings and the information with the public. And we'll talk a little bit more about that later. What I usually do on the podcast is kind of chronologically go through your undergrad, grad, why you chose certain universities. So tell me a little bit more about your undergraduate studies at Loyola. Back then it was Loyola University. Now it's Loyola Marymount University. So tell me a little bit more about yeah. that. 
Yeah, it became LMU while I was there, actually. Oh, okay. Because uh, it was an all-males uh, school and then um, Mount St. Uh, uh, Mary's well, that came the, the came over in my junior year. Well, I'm, uh, you know, my uh, 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 brother had gone there, so I was kind of uh, oriented towards it. And I thought a small school would be a little better for me than a big uh, state school. And um, to be honest, also, my mother was pretty religious at the time, and she really wanted me to go to a Catholic uh, school. It's a Jesuit uh, school and uh, and a good quality one. And so I said, OK, I'll, I'll do that. And I was able to get the scholarship, but we wouldn't have been able to afford as a family without that. But I was able to, to get that. And um, it's, it turned out to be uh, a part of my life journey that was uh, uh, really helpful because I met some really good teachers early on who, um, you know, still live with me in terms of things they taught me. Well, one interesting fact that, uh, and I want to confirm this, I shouldn't call it a fact, but based on some of the information that uh, I read about you, is it true that you used to have 12 inch long hair as a freshman and then you <laughs> cut it off in order to enter the Air Force ROTC? Yeah, it was uh, to the, my, uh, uh, halfway down my back. I mean, I was an early hippie <laughs> kind of guy, and this is happening just when that was all happening. But um, uh, early enough that uh, I was the only one on campus who looked like that as a freshman. Now, by by the time I'm leaving, you know, the whole campus looks like a whole bunch of hippies invaded. <laughs> uh, but it was a little disorienting to some of. I mean, let's be honest, uh, Loyola Marymount had a kind of conservative quality there, um, uh, and especially some of the professors. I mean, the professor of my, uh, head of my department had been in Eastern Europe and escaped uh, when the Russians took over his country and so forth, and he really thought, you know, the world was collapsing to see all these uh, long hairs suddenly show up in the U.S. of A., and so... Uh, uh, yeah, I uh, 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 I was the odd one, for sure, uh, early on. Well, as I mentioned in my intro, you were the only person, and you already mentioned an all-male campus with long hair at the time. So when you cut it off, you actually did so, and the entire cafeteria crowd stood up and clapped. And so that's what I was kind of alluding to in the intro. It's kind of a yeah, I fun little story. Yeah, I laughed telling that story. <laughs> I mean, I, it's seared in my brain when I because we we ate in a in a large cafeteria, and the, uh, uh, if you lived in the dorms as I did, and. Uh, who knew they were tracking, you know, this freshman? The reason I was doing it is I was trying to avoid being sent to the Vietnam as a, you know, in the army or something. And I could get into the Air Force ROTC, and boy, that was a, you know, I didn't really want to do it. And I was an anti-war guy, of course, and you know, as many of my generation were. But you know, they'll. I didn't want to move to Canada, you know. So I'm trying to figure out a way, and the lottery had me you know, really frightened, you know, because you just rolled the dice and that would just say, are you headed into Nam or not? And I had friends who were already had died. Uh, and so uh, I tried to make it happen. And to do that, I had to cut my hair and get those polished black shoes. And that lasted a week. I mean, me marching up and down, you know, <laughs> I, I, I said, I can't do it. I just can't do it. So, um, but yeah, when I cut my hair and walked into the cafeteria, 
the entire cafeteria stood up and clapped. I didn't even know they knew I was there, but uh, oh, yeah. they did know. And they were a little upset about, as I say, that that culture changed really, really fast. And uh, I wasn't the only long hair just within uh, months or years of that time, but uh, yeah, kind of an odd moment. It's a fun story to share. And, and you already mentioned you lasted one week and you decided, no, this isn't for me. You had the nice black polished shoes. And then the other thing that I, I think you mentioned in, in one of your documents is by the time you graduated, and I think you alluded to it already, you were a senior, there were hundreds of long haired hippies. So uh, uh, you had well, regrown your hair back then. To be honest, they were sitting on the lawn smoking weed. I mean, come on. <laughs> it was so different. But uh you know, it's, it did have a cost. Uh, you know, I, I, because of that reputation, it took me a long time to get into graduate school. And, uh, and that really uh, uh, story came out later on. But at first, I, I just couldn't understand it, because I had excellent grades, excellent test scores, and I, I couldn't become a graduate student, nobody would take me. And I, we're going to talk about that in one second, but I have one question before we, we transition to that. At what point did you know that you wanted to get your graduate degree in psychology then? Well, I went into uh, college knowing I wanted to be a psychologist. I made the decision uh, in high school because mm -hmm. of this art and literature. And I said, what is the way, one, what is a field that you can do both? Psychology occurred to me. And at the time I was reading people like Abraham Maslow, peak experiences, things of that kind of, I was fascinated with that. And boy, was that a wise decision. I mean, you can combine almost anything inside psychology, anything, you know, you're interested in music, there's a psychology music. You're interested in religion, there's a psychology religion. I mean, because all psychology is, is looking at human behavior and emotion, thought and the rest. And so, you're interested in physics. Yeah, well, there's a psychology of science and there's a psychology of being a good physicist. You can study physicists to understand who are the ones you're doing it right now. How did people become, you know, known psychologists and so forth? You're exploring that in part because, well, you could, well, psychologists could do that. So there isn't any area of human endeavor that you can name. So it's a wise decision. And, um, and I knew I had to get a graduate degree in order to really do that to the nine. So I, as a junior in high school, said I didn't get a PhD in psychology. Okay. And I never wavered, never wavered, not even a moment. Well, that's, I, I, there might be a handful of other people out there or a certain percentage, but back in high school, I had an idea. I narrowed it down to maybe two, three different things, but I didn't know. Yeah, this is the route I'm going. So you already mentioned a couple minutes ago that uh, it, it, it kind of, um, there was a positive aspect and a negative aspect of your, your hair and, and the generation that you were involved in. I read that it took you almost three years for you to get into graduate school. You had nearly 40 rejections and you eventually found out that the chair of psychology at Loyola uh, had included in uh, your letter, his letter about you, that he thought you were a drug addict. How did you find this out? And how did you react? Well, boy, that was a, a fluke that I did find out. And it's good that I did. It has given me heart for people who struggle to get into graduate school. And I can almost always top their stories, no matter how many times they've tried, because not many people are rejected by 40 schools over three uh, years. 
No, but the good father Sicklick saw this long-haired hippie person and thought the, the end had arrived. You know, Western civilization was collapsing and surely I must be a drug addict. You know, in fact, yes, did I explore some things that are now illegal? Yes, I did. Uh, but come on, uh, it, was, it was unfair to me, but I understand it. I have heart for, for why I did that. I wish he had told it. I went to him, can you write a letter? Yes. I didn't remember to ask the next question. Can you write me a good letter? Right. <laughs> Do ask that of your letter writers, make sure. But because it was such an anomaly with my test scores and everybody rejecting me, finally, a friend of my brother's knew a faculty member at uh, the university at, at Stony Brook, the uh, uh, University of uh, uh, New York uh, at, at Stony Brook, now called, I think, Stony Brook University, very, very prestigious, nice campus. And the, the guy's name was Les Femi. I, I never met him, but he turned out later to be a mindfulness researcher and he was working in my area. And I wrote him a letter of thank you that he had basically saved my life because he went in and looked at my record and he should not have done this. It was a break of to, uh, the system to do it, but he gave me just a little thing. You've got a bad letter, which was passed back to my friend, to my brother, to me. Oh, and uh, he said, you know, the chair of your department has said that you're a drug addict. So I removed that letter, and then suddenly I was accepted in all these different places. I had spent one year in a master's program at San Diego State that, at the time, admitted everybody with a GRE above a particular level and a GPA above 3.0, and they would. I remember the first day I went to San Diego State, it was about 300 people sitting in a huge room. And the person would get up and say, as of next semester, 90% of you will be gone. They just gave you horrifically hard classes and they flunked out 90% of the people. And then that would be their master's class. Right. They're not still doing it that way anymore. And San Diego State's a pretty good place, actually. But uh, yeah, I eventually then got in a number of schools. I have looked at how many schools later on offered me jobs that I turned down, who had turned me down as a student. And it's more than a handful. So, uh, uh, you know, life unfolded in an interesting way. But, you know, of course, they were not going to admit somebody that the chair says, you know, the person's a drug addict. They're not going to do that. So I uh, understand it, but I was able to repair it. and. Um, I got admitted to West Virginia University, and that uh, uh, turned out to be another kind of very positive uh, step forward. It's interesting that later in your career, you actually did turn down, as you mentioned, faculty job offers from some of the very <laughs> same schools that That's refused right. to admit you as a student. Then, uh, yeah, so you've already mentioned you're, you're actually leading into my next question here. For some reason, you decided to travel all the way from L.A., to Morgantown, West Virginia, to attend WVU. So there are a few schools, and I'm going to share my screen here for one second here. Uh, let's go here. And I'll share my screen. And so for those of you watching and following, West Virginia has some psychology programs, uh, master's level and doctorate. And back in the day, when you went, it was probably about the same, uh, probably a handful of uh, institutions or universities. So tell me, 
you know, why did you decide on WVU? And then secondly, why did you decide or how did you decide on clinical psychology? I know that you wanted to become a psychologist and that's probably your, your answer is, well, to become a psychologist, practicing psychologist, you need that clinical psychology. Uh, the last part, not quite, but let me tell that story. I mean, I came into psychology because Abraham Maslow, but I really wanted this tight science to be progressive, et cetera. And one of the early, early behavior therapists, a guy named Irv Kessler, was one of my professors. The first journal ever published in behavior therapy is published in 1966, Behavior Research and Therapy. Well, I'm going to Loyola Marymount right about that same time. And uh, Irv actually had me sit in and watch his therapy. I mean, it was the kind of school Loyola was. And so as a freshman, I'm literally sitting in there watching a session of desensitization, early, early behavior therapy. And uh, so Irv had had me reading some behavioral kinds of things. And then somewhere in there, he suggested that I read Walden too which was B.F. Skinner, the, the person who's kind of the father of behavior analysis and the wing of behavioral psychology, uh, is utopian novel. Well, as a commune-loving, hippy-dippy person who's thinking about Maslow and peak experiences, but wanting to, I said, man, this is cool. You can go from rats and pigeons to how you could organize the world, maybe, you know, and I didn't take it to be Skinner said, this is the answer. It's just like, this is the challenge we have to meet. And that was my challenge, you know, to go all the way up to things that people are writing novels about, but from a tight way. So I gravitated towards uh, behavior therapy and behavior analysis, behavior modification, as was called then and so forth. And uh, West Virginia was one of the early adopters that had a, a whole clinical program that was moving in that direction. Plus, they had a basic behavior analysis program. Their experimental psychology program was in that direction. I had not yet decided that I wanted to be a clinical psychologist, I, but the behavioral stuff interested me. So I actually constructed with my own hands uh, an animal lab at, at Loyola Marymount, ran animal studies, you know, went in there every day, fed the rats, was bitten multiple times. I mean, it just was, created the equipment. Some, one of those, two of those uh, uh, article, uh, those studies actually published later on. Um, and so when I went to West Virginia University, although I was not full in, I remember writing a letter of, is is it exclusively behavioral? Because that had scared me a little bit. I didn't want to be narrowed, but I did want some of these cutting edge new ideas in behavioral psychology of, uh, that now look people think of, oh, that's a past, but at the time was the progressive cutting edge. And so uh, it turned out to be a brilliant uh, move for me because I found, in fact, not just behavioral psychologists, both basic and applied, and I did run more animal studies. I worked with people who were very, very good basic psychologists and I've continued that work in my own life, um, but uh, professional life, but also people who are really interested in kind of a radical, functional, contextualistic form of behavioral thinking, which is little known, um, but there's Skinnerian scholars who treat Skinner way more like Maslow than they would like uh, Hall or Spence, you know, push, pull, click, click, mechanistic psychology. Uh, uh, instead, this more kind of almost phenomenological 
approach to behavioral psychology. So that's the way I was socialized. And it's still who I am today, all these years later. Um, I'm actually in a behavior analysis program right now. I left clinical for reasons that we might get into, but uh, I decided clinical was the best approach for me because I could do both. In in clinical, when you sort of have that credential, you have that, it's a thing where, yeah, you can run animal studies if you want. You can run basic studies if you want. You can do that. But you can also have a license, have a practice. And so when I looked at the other alternatives there, you know, counseling, industrial organizational, they all seemed like it was, they were a little more constrained. And I wanted as maximum amount of freedom. And so that was why it wasn't because I wanted to channel myself to just help people or just be a psychotherapist, anything like that. I just wanted to be a psychologist who could be anything. Mm -hmm. Same theme uh, from the very beginning in high school. Well, I I know that you had mentioned in one of your documents that uh, from the very beginning, you wanted to stay broad. And I think you kind of alluded to that in your answer there. You, you didn't want to be pigeonholed and and narrowed down. And um, before I move on to that, though, I I should, uh, I don't want to forget to ask the question, were you considering other schools other than WVU? And if so, you know, why did you eventually go to WV? Yeah, I did. You know, I, I, I looked at Stony Brook because I had some behavior analysts there. Um, I looked at some more traditional behavioral places like Iowa, uh, places like that, uh, you know, whole, whole spends kind of influenced. But when it really got, and I got accepted at many, 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 I don't know, many, at least 12 doctoral programs. Uh, because I was applying in large numbers because I knew you know that it can, you can get zero acceptances, and I wasn't really confident that just changing that letter would really do it. Turned out it did, and so there was something. The other reason, to be honest, why West Virginia is that the people were singing "Almost Heaven, West Virginia." It was a popular song, and it sounded really cool. And my uh, wife at the time thought it would be really cool to be a country girl in, in West Virginia. And so uh, with my baby and uh, wife, we loaded up a trailer and drove across the country and went to West Virginia. But uh, uh, so it was a little bit of a combination of uh, John Denver's song. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, maybe that's the hippie part of me still thinking that you know, there'd be some sort of uh, sweet uh, kind of rural place. I mean, the hippies were, I was back to the land or even, I mean, I lived on a commune in the middle of nowhere um, for a little while. So that appealed to that side of me too. I think when you were living on a commune there, you were helping uh, uh, build a house for one of your friends. Is that right? Yeah. 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 It later burned down, but I, I took those skills and I've been remodeling my house ever since, you know, my alternative, <laughs> we actually, when I went to the third time when I applied, I said, okay, either I'm going to be a carpenter, I'm going to be a politician. Why? Because I was a full-time um, a community activist working in an environmental organization with a labor organizer who really changed my, my life and make it into that story. But because it will show up later on. Uh, or I'll, I'll if I get admitted, finally, I'm going to be a psychologist. Well, I've ended up being all three of those things. I've been a politician because within psychology, mm-hmm. organizing, you know, big organizations and so forth. And I remodel my home constantly. And uh, I've literally had my house down to studs in every single room and still crazy things like that. 
And uh, I, some people think I'm a pretty good psychologist. So those three options continue to be my options. Well, it seems like you've succeeded in all three of them and, and uh, living the nice life there. Um, I, I should ask this question. Uh, you went to WVU and I think you applied directly to their uh, PhD program. Yes. Um, a lot of our audience members ask, well, how do I know whether or not I should just apply to a master's program? And if I like it, continue, or should I just go ahead and apply to a PhD program at the very beginning? Any thoughts on or advice on, on telling yeah. some of those students? My thought is always have a fallback with the master's programs and arrange them if you're applying at the PhD level. Uh, I didn't do that. That's why I had no option. Finally, then I did that. That's why I went to San Diego State for a year. It was the only one who accepted me because they had this automatic acceptance and I knew I'd be accepted and then they would try to flunk me out. Uh, and then finally, the third year, uh, the doctoral programs uh, uh, kind of uh, uh, showed up. So have a fallback. I actually ended up in that fallback. Um, if you're going to do that, though, it actually, if you have the option of a, or you think you really want a doctoral level training, have some good doctoral level programs that you apply to. Why? Because you'll spend less time if you go through that way directly to a PhD. While master's training is helpful, and I had one year of a master's program myself, uh, it, not all those courses will transfer. Mm -hmm. And so you will spend more total time in your training, probably unnecessarily. And so, um, yeah, I, I, I thought I might as well give it a shot to go to the PhD level. And I was able to do that. Uh, West Virginia actually very soon after had a, uh, a professional master's as one of the first and earliest, and now that's grown. But at the time that was very unusual. And it's because of their forward, forward looking, I think, kind of behaviorally driven idea that there's not enough PhDs in the world to meet the level of care. So you have to have PhDs developing knowledge, master's level, and sometimes even less than master's level, depending on what you're doing, being able to apply that knowledge in various ways. And now with apps and websites and so forth, there's lots of ways of applying that isn't necessarily even the behavior of a master's level person. Maybe somebody's designing it and disseminating. But uh, so, yeah, I ended up in the PhD program was happily so. The other thing that I'd add, and, and I'd ask for your uh, thoughts on this as well, uh, throughout all of my experience and then meeting with all of these guests on the podcast, I get the sense that there tends to be more uh, money available if you apply to uh, the PhD program versus a master's program as well. So for sure, that's true. And there's also, you know, in if you if you're getting over into the side world and the professional schools and so forth, you're going to carry a lot of student debt. You know, that can, you know, make your life hard for a pretty long time. And mm -hmm. so if you depends on what your interests are, though, I mean, you should get to a program that really lifts you up and carries you forward. That's most important. But if you um, uh, are going to be able to get uh, a fellowship and a scholarship and uh, the support and so forth, it's most likely in the doctoral programs and most likely in those that are in uh, more major universities uh, so on. So what were, yep. What were some of the fondest memories uh, looking back uh, when you were attended graduate schools? Any fond memories that uh, you can remember? Oh, golly, it was so many. And what I especially appreciated was the sense of community. And, you know, we 
in that program because it was cutting edge and, and new. We had a feeling we were doing something that would really change the world. And the, the, the faculty there had a very unusual perspective. You know, like I learned how to do systems analysis, PERT charting, things that now you can do with help of your, our software pretty easily. At the time, it was way cutting edge thinking of how to organize entire big projects with the, you know, hundred different things you have to track and how did you do that? Um, they allowed me to do research as a clinical psychology person on environmental problems. My dissertation was on how to get people to reduce electricity use uh, in by getting feedback monthly. What shows up in your bill now, uh, when you get a bill, it says how you're doing now compared to last year, last month. The first person ever to study that, that was my dissertation. <laughs> and I had a role of getting the public utility commissions. There was another dissertation too, came out at that same time and it spread across the US of A. Nobody tracks it to me. They don't say that's why you get it in your bill, but I had a role in getting that in your bill. But my point just being that if you can find a program, you know, that really allows you to be part of something and that frees you up to be who you are, uh, that's a wonderful place to be. And we would, you know, have meetings regularly to consider really geeky philosophical issues inside behavioral thinking. We would, you know, the environmental stuff that I was on to, there was a number of people who were interested in it and, and would be, help me out on that. And so look for a place where you can, based on my experience that you could ally with others and be part of a, a larger community that has some shared vision. One thing that most of our audience usually ask is, you know, what kind of advice would you have for those seeking a graduate degree in psychology? And they don't necessarily know which field they're going to enter, but any general advice for those who are just considering entering the field of psychology? Well, follow your heart because what's going to keep you going at two in the morning when you know when it's, the chips are down is what brings passion into your life so your ideas are really really important yeah you're going to be shaped your ideas are probably wrong in form like you don't know how to do good research as a beginner you just don't you don't know how to do the you know methodological statistical theoretical things that you'll learn the technical things you'll learn you may be a good listener and people say you should be a psychologist that doesn't mean you know how to be a clinical psychologist you wouldn't want that if that's where if you already have that knowledge and then all you're getting is a union card and nobody really wants to go through a sham process but when push comes to shove what's going to be important is what brings passion to your life and so take the time to really explore of when does your heart rate pick up? When does that sense of interest or vitality that's intrinsic show up and use it to be a guide? The other thing is, is that it's a social enterprise to be trained and a social enterprise to do work that matters. And so make sure the human beings that you're going to be with are the kind of human beings that you want to spend several years with. Mm -hmm. Don't just pick it on the basis of reputation. Try to go there if you can and interview if you're allowed to. Talk to the students and secretaries. Don't just talk to the muckety-muck professors. Turn the rocks over. And if you get a sense that there's something wrong, something's hidden, there's a sense of secrecy or, or there's something in the... Don't go there. Mm -hmm. Don't go there. I mean, even if it's, you know, the prestigious place, if if the... If the vibes are wrong, it's the wrong choice for you. 
Very good advice. I'm sharing my screen again. And I wanted to highlight a couple things for people out there who wanted to find out more about Dr. Uh, Hayes here. Tons of information out there. As you can tell, I did a lot of research on you in preparation for this, but I loved uh, your website here, your about page, and then your career page. I loved how you actually chronologically set it up because that's how I run my podcast interviews as well. So I got a lot of information going through all of this, some good stories, some good, uh, you, you traced basically your influences, your major influences throughout your career as well. So here's another website. We'll include this on, on the podcast as well. And then you had a nice research lineage or academic lineage uh, page here as well. So now you're currently at um, University of Nevada, Reno. I like this page here as well. Uh, gives a good summary. Um, before I talk about uh, uh, the University of Nevada, Reno, do you recall what your first job was after graduating with your doctorate? Yeah, I was a professor at the University of North Carolina, Greensboro, and they were starting a clinical program, just starting it, and they wanted to have kind of a cutting edge behavioral emphasis, and uh, Rosemary Nelson was the director of clinical training, uh, still, you know, a well-known uh, cognitive behavior therapist, and um, so uh, I went there for 10 years, uh, I left because they started fighting. Uh, I tell that story and how I developed a panic disorder and walked out of panic uh, into act, you know, sitting in a full in, in a department meeting, watch them fight, as they say, in a way that only wild animals and full professors are capable of. <laughs> um, and so I and I came to the University of Nevada, Reno. So I've been at two uh, doctoral uh, programs. And uh, and I, I came uh, in part or left in part because that same sense of what I was saying, find a social group where you can be uplifted and supported. One thing that I should highlight for everybody is instead of, you know, from this point on, after you graduated, I, I read your Vita, I looked at all the jobs that you've held, instead of highlighting all the jobs you've had since you received your PhD until now, I'd like to highlight just a few things. First, you are the, the developer of the relational frame theory and have guided its extension to what you already mentioned uh, and I mentioned in the intro to acceptance and commitment therapy or ACT, which is one of the most widely used and researched methods of psychological intervention over the last 20 years. Tell us a little bit more about ACT while I share my screen. And uh, for those of you who are just listening, I'm sharing a screen of the different types of therapy. And one of them is, of course, ACT therapy. So while I bring that up, just high, high level view of what ACT is. Sure. The sort of nutshell version is uh, ACT uh, teaches people how to be more emotionally and cognitively open and flexible to stop running from your uh, emotions or clinging to emotions, stop getting entangled in your thoughts when it's not helpful, be able to think in a broad way, come into this present moment that you're living in inside and out consciously from this more almost spiritual sense of self, the part of you that connects you in consciousness to others. And when you've done those things, that sort of allows you to have a, a more mindful space to do what's really important, which is to focus on what are your deepest values? What are the things that you most care about, really? And how can you organize your life moments around them and build habits that are values directed and create a meaningful life? 
And so those, you can think of those things I just said as six things, emotional openness, cognitive flexibility, uh, attention to the now from this uh, sense of self that isn't just the part you can categorize and judge, but the part that's noticing the person behind your eyes, metaphorically, values and committed action. If you were to simplify that model, you could say learning how to be more open, aware, and actively engaged in life. Or if you just simplify it further, you'd see how to how to be more psychologically flexible in life. And it turns out that's what we call it acceptance and commitment therapy, or when it's used in business industry, things like that. The school's acceptance and commitment training mm -hmm. act in either case. And I'm proud to say we're just about to exceed uh, when they when we do the next posting we will be at around 1030 randomized controlled trials on act uh, even um, 20, 20 years ago when I first declared the arrival of act after 20 years of development that's how long it took because I wanted things like a basic analysis of cognition I wanted things like what I saw in the animal lab back in the day now with human beings and i really worked hard to do that but uh, when i first really stepped forward and said you know i had my first text on act we had one randomized trial we're about to pass now 20 years later 1000 so it's and not just in mental health areas uh, about 40 percent of it in behavioral health dealing with cancer diagnoses weight loss things of that kind and social justice social wellness prejudice stigma um environmental interests you know looping all the way back to some of my earliest interests as a graduate student um so uh i've been on a journey to try to get the smallest set of processes that do the most things in the most areas and uh, i've we've done a pretty good job over these now 40 years from uh, the first act workshop to today I'd say you've done a very, a very good job. You're an author of 47 books, as I mentioned, and over 675 scientific articles. Your newest book that I have on the screen right now, Learning Process-Based Therapy, a skills training manual for targeting the core processes of psychological change and clinical practice, I believe came out in December 2021. Tell us a little bit more about this book. Well, essentially... PBT or process-based approach, it's really not a new form of therapy. It's a new way of thinking about what evidence-based therapy is, says, instead of focusing so much on syndromes and the way that we've done this with our traditional diagnostic system, we should focus on biopsychosocial processes of change. What is it that lifts up and moves people forward and then fit what we do to the particular individual needs of the person, the culprit, the family, uh, the organization that we're working with. And the, the process-based approach allows you to do that. And we've looked to see, you know, what are the functionally important pathways of change in all of these randomized trials. We just published a meta-analysis. And I can tell you that something like 55% of all the studies that have ever shown a successful pathway of change have done it through psychological flexibility and mindfulness. So the, the little corner of the world that I was part of and now can claim more than half of everything we know, if you get a little more flexible, it can easily go up into 60, 70% of everything we know about how change happens. And so uh, a process-based approach says, let's not worry about the name brand, you know, ACT, DBT, CBT, 
you know, um, psychoanalytic or motion focused therapy, uh, gestalt therapy. Let's not worry about that. Let's worry about who's in front of us. What are they doing that's inhibiting their progress? What could they do that would foster their progress? Progress towards what? Towards what they deeply want. Mm -hmm. And how can we deliver that? What's the most effective and efficient way that we can deliver that? That's the PBT approach. It's kind of the meta that's been in my whole life now scaled and given a name. And I'm excited that the people who've come to it, I mean, that book you mentioned uh, is written by the person who was my arch enemy and strongest critic in the early days of ACT, Stefan Hoffman, mm -hmm. a dedicated cognitive therapist. He still hasn't done an ACT workshop. He's not an ACT guy, but he's my closest friend and closest colleague because it turns out in all of our arguments we've learned that what we really cared about were processes of change and how to put them in people's lives. And once we got there, there was nothing to fight about. So we've been working together and there's a quite a large community of people who are coming together in CBT, but not just that, you know, we're getting interest of people, you know, like a Peter Fonagy out of Modern Forms of Psychoanalysis or, you know, like a Les Greenberg or Sue Johnson after out of Modern Forms of Humanistic Therapy. And that I think is our, uh, would be an exciting thing that goes all the way back to my first inkling of what I wanted to do in my life as a high school student. Could we figure out a way of taking like a Maslow and bring them into a tight science approach? Could we find a way that would actually combine art and literature and the best of science? And if I could just share with you just a tiny little thing, but if you want to see something really cool, just Google, here comes a thought and you'll get a song on Steven's universe that is an act song that 40 million people have looked at. So, you know, why? Because it's, in a, it's a wonderful song put in one of the most popular cartoons uh, that are out there. There it is right there. And you read the lyrics, so you'll realize it's an act song. The wiki page for Stevens Universe, the cartoon that did it, uh, explained that it was based on Get Out of Your Mind and Your Life, my first popular book. And they even have the cartoon hero in there uh, wear a, a bald wig. As <laughs> <laughs> a little shout out to yours truly. So this is happening all around me. I'm about to have a conversation tomorrow with, uh, you know, with a uh, singer songwriter who, who's, uh, you know, won awards for singing and who wants to write some act songs for children. So, you know, I'm back to where I started. I'm back to where I started, uh, put, trying to put psychology knowledge over in art and literature. And if I mention one more, get uh, 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 Guy Ritchie's movie, Revolver, mm -hmm. and then watch the credits at the very end. And this old bald guy will show up and give an explanation because <laughs> Guy and I are friends and he's been trying to put some act ideas into his movies. So I found a way to sort of loop all the way back to where I started. Well, it's interesting you say that. I'm sharing the screen again. Uh, YouTube videos, your, your TEDx talks and your YouTube presentations uh, have exceeded over 1 million views. What I like is that you, as I mentioned, are actively bringing and sharing your research and relevant information to the public through these talks, YouTube presentations, 
your blog on psychology today, Medium, I'll, I'll point up here in a second, or I'll put up on the screen in a second, and then Thrive Global Websites. But one thing that I wanted to highlight is, here's one of your uh, uh, TED talk, TEDx talks, and then you have some others here that uh, you can find uh, out on the internet as well, a good uh, variety of TED talks here. But now that you mentioned that, you brought up one thing that I didn't uncover during my research about the lyrics and, and that cartoon that I brought up for you as well. So that's got to be exciting. I mean, you, 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 I could hear it in your voice saying, it's interesting. Now I'm coming back to what originally got me going here. So it's got to be exciting for you to see all of these things happening. No, it's, 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 it's been a wonderful journey and a wonderful ride. You know, and the reason I spend most time reaching out to the public is I believe that science really makes a difference when it lands in individuals and in people's lives and that we have a cultural responsibility, especially those of us who are privileged enough to have tenure track state university positions. Our salaries are paid by people who drive a cab, you know, and I've got to be able to figure out how to reach them. And so, you know, I do blog and I do the apps and websites and, and YouTube and all of that. Uh, it'll sound prideful, but let me just say, I wrote a, a blog uh, for Psychology Today and Medium and Thrive uh, on this meta-analysis I was just mentioning to you of uh, processes of change. Two months later, a quarter million people have read that blog. Mm -hmm. You know, so, and these are normal folks. So we're not just talking to, you know, a small part of the world. And why would that matter? Well, because when people know that, for example, learning to be more psychologically flexible is something you can do and it'll change your life. And by the way, there's resources that are out there for free. I mean, the World Health Organization distributes a cartoon book for free that is an ACT book. Why? Because they found that in several randomized trials that help victims of war, it's being deployed right now in the Ukraine. You know, that's just kind of cool that you can do something. And then if you take the time to use that amplifying voice that can happen now with things like this podcast or like, uh, you know, the uh, blogs and so forth, uh, to me, that's part of my social responsibility. I'm sharing the screen again. I mentioned Medium. And so here's the Medium uh, website. And you have mm -hmm. all these different ones on here. And I was scrolling up and down while you were talking to find that one that you were referencing, the meta-analysis. Yeah, you just skipped over it. Um, oh, did I? Yeah, it's the one that says, uh, keep, go keep going back, keep going back. It's uh, keep going up there. The most important skill set in mental health. There you go. That one at Psychology Today and here at Medium and so forth, more than a quarter million people have read that. And you can see it was only put out in August. So it was just recently. That's and, you know, I'm, I'm not sort of going like, oh, I got a lot of likes on my Instagram post. Therefore, my life is worthwhile. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about dissemination of knowledge. I don't even like the word dissemination. It's using our science to empower others. Mm -hmm. And... If we do it well, yes, people will access it. And, and yes, of course, you know, people become known and all of that. But the real issue is not fame, it's not money, it's not that, it's making a difference mm -hmm. in the lives of those we serve. And here's the Thrive website, and they have a bunch of different authors, but I brought yours up. And then uh, again, you have all these different uh, yeah. posts on here and information. I, I actually, what drew my attention was, 
There was one here that was uh, obviously relevant at the time. What we can learn from Simone Biles uh, yeah. also stood out to me. And I looked at that. That was very interesting as well. Yeah, absolutely. We, uh, we, we, we I, I actually have staff who helped me with this. And I take some of the, you know, these things, the royalties for books, et cetera. And I pay for the staff to sort of just do this. Mm -hmm. And so if I write a blog and then uh, we, we find some good images, blah, blah, blah. Uh, I have folks who actually get out and put it into these multiple channels and they work on my website and all that kind of thing. And it's kind of odd that I've ended up there, but it's, it's just a way of amplifying the work that I'm doing. Google Scholar, I mentioned this in the intro, Google Scholar data ranks you among the top 935 highest impact living scholars worldwide in all areas of study. And so I'm going to go there and here is uh, the website. Uh, and here you are still sitting at 935. Uh, but this shows the list of all the scholars that are uh, here uh, as well. And then uh, the other recent one or more recent one is the research.com lists you as the 63rd highest impact psychologist in the world. So again, yeah, I mentioned don't I move mean, there. <laughs> two steps. There's David Barlow, who's my mentor on internship. And when this came out, he sent me a little thing saying, you've been chasing me for 30 years and you finally caught up. Yeah. <laughs> So we had a good laugh. David's a wonderful, wonderful uh, internationally known psychologist. Uh, and uh, I, I, uh, I had a good chuckle with him. We, we're playing as if it matters. You know, it's not the ranking that matters. It's the contributions to, to others that matter. Yeah, definitely. Um, another thing that I found interesting when researching you is that you formed or helped to form three scientific societies, the APS, or other people would know it as Association for Psychological Science. The second one was the Association for Applied and Preventative uh, Psychology, which hit around 2000 members, but eventually folded. And then the latest, most recent was the Association or is the Association for Contextual Behavioral Science, ACBS, which has now grown to more than 8,700 members and 28 chapters worldwide. Uh, forming or helping to form these scientific societies isn't done every day by everyone. No. Example, yeah. Tell us how, how, you know, for example, tell us about how you came up with the idea for ACBS and the backstory on it uh, while I bring it up on the screen for everybody. Yeah, ACBS is the latest of these three efforts. APS, uh, the first chapter, I mean, the first office was my lab, uh, and it grew into being the biggest uh, psychological science-oriented organization in the US of A. Uh, AAAPP, which is my attempt to sort of make sure that clinical was part of that journey for reasons I can explain for a while, APS wasn't very clinically oriented, even though uh, I initiated it with some of my clinical colleagues. That's a, a, another story to tell. Then ACBS, what happened was, is that I have been trying to sort of get enough focus on these third wave CBT methods, ACT, the, the, the kinds of things, the relational frame theory. And I wasn't able to get enough of the existing attention from the existing associations in a way that would build the work. And it was starting to happen that we, we created a listserv. Next thing you know, there was 800 people on it. Well, now there's several thousand. But uh, I held a conference 
if I can, this story happened, uh, take a little while to tell, but I think it's important. I was supposed to give a conference in Sweden uh, in uh, uh, 2001 uh, in September. And uh, I got a call before I left to get on the plane, literally suitcase in hand. And they said, you turn on the television, you're not going anywhere. And it was 9-11. And so, in fact, the planes were all grounded. The conference didn't happen. The workshop didn't happen. And about a year later, I called the organizers and uh, we said, we ought to do something. And in fact, we had to do something to meet evil with good, you know, we to, and I had since organized my lab more to be looking at prejudice, stigma, things of that kind. I feared what later would happen with Abu Ghraib and the rest, uh, even in the US of A. But um, one reason why my act work so much moved towards prejudice, stigma, things of that kind. But finally, in 2003, we did it. And uh, 800 people showed up. And it was called the a conference on ACT, RFT, and the new behavioral psychology. And it was such a wonderful thing. I said, oh, we have to do this again. And we did it the next year and people showed up and then we have to do it again. And it's, we, and by then they're saying, my God, you know, we have an association. So I uh, took my wonderful secretary who was helping running my publishing company Another way that amplifying the voice, I actually created a publishing company, which I later sold, still exists, called Context Press. Um, no longer mine, but I help with them. But um, uh, we, I had her become the executive director, and we've been doing it ever since, and it's one of the fastest growing uh, societies out there. I think I, I had 28 uh, chapters. I think it's actually up to something like 40 now in 18 oh, different right. languages in almost every area of the world. Um, right before this talk, I was talking to a group in Turkey. There's a very large chapter there. Uh, so I spend a lot of my time. Uh, but now important thing about ACBS, Contextual Behavioral Science, is that it wasn't the Association for ACT. It's not the Association for RFT. I wanted an association that focused on getting processes that we can put in people's lives. And so there's a really vigorous group on climate change. There's a really vigorous group on diversity, equity, inclusion issues and immigration and dealing with trauma from war. And so, yeah, it's um, an association that is sort of oriented towards ACT, but not in a narrow way but in this way that fits the spirit of our conversation. It definitely does. And I'm sharing the screen again, for those of you who can't see it, I'm uh, sharing the video um, page on uh, ACBS. And the reason I'm bringing this up is you mentioned that it's not only ACT, it's all these other things that are out there. And from my understanding of it is you become a member and uh, you can share all these different resources, information, videos, you can search by presenter, search by topic. And on this page, uh, I just brought it up and you know it brings some of the most recent videos and information available out there uh, that you can uh, browse as well. What's interesting about this organization, correct me if I'm wrong, is that uh, it, it's not just one fee 
or membership. It's actually based on needs as well. And uh, so if you're lower income and you still want to become a member, uh, work with the association and I'm sure that they can get you uh, to become a member. You can only post videos and share knowledge and information after you become a member. So that's one thing to uh, keep in mind. Yeah, Anything else? Right. It's kind of like a wiki site. And because of that, it's, it has an amazing amount of free materials there. And we are the only big association I know of that has what we call values-based dues. We say, uh, pay what you think the work is worth to you. If you don't know yet, don't pay much. <laughs> and pay with adjusting for your ability to pay. We ask our minimum is $12 a year because that's what it, most of that goes to Elsevier for the free journal, which is a very high impact factor, 5.1, and uh, 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 a very high quality journal that you get for free. But if even that is too much, write us and let us know and we'll try to adjust to it. And so, for example, uh, in some parts of the world where they can't pay, like Iranian colleagues can't do it because of the sanctions, we have mm -hmm. a we have a scholarship program and they can join for free. And so that's true around the world. And, um, uh, and you don't need to have a professional credential of one sort or another. Most people are psychologists, psychiatrists, social workers, and so on. But some people are teachers or coaches or business people or whatever. Why? Because the kind of knowledge we're talking about are knowledge that you can use in almost any setting. Well, thank you for that summary. Looking toward the future, you're already a success. I mean, uh, by any stretch of the mean, any measurement that you want to look at, but looking toward the future, what are some other goals or challenges that you have for yourself? I have two or three really big ones and I'm 74. I'm about to retire from the university, but I've become, and you've mentioned it, a president of a charitable organization that has a 45 year history. We're developing an app that will allow you to do case conceptualization using the ideas inside process-based therapy, psychological flexibility, the things that we've been talking about. Um, I'm also a very, uh, you know, uh, uh, actively involved in trying to create new statistical methods that allow us to look at individuals one at a time. Hmm. Because it turns out when you are focused on processes of change and fitting all of the evidence-based things that are out there to the needs of the individual, if you homogenize people into a group, uh, you, you miss it. And I think young people know there's something wrong with the homogenization that's, that's happened. I think you see it in what's happening with gender or what's happening with uh, you know, political affiliation uh, in religion, the rise of none of the above doesn't mm -hmm. mean you're not religious, but you no longer necessarily want to be cubbyholed because I think people have been raised and I can have it my way. I can have my music stream, not a radio station. You know, I can have a news stream, not necessarily one of the big three, uh, uh, you know, uh, television networks and so on. And implicit in that is wisdom, which is psychology and its knowledge ought to be fitted to the individual. So I am working really hard to uh, uh, figure out how to put new tools into people's hands that get out of normative categories. Oh, I have this disorder or that into these are the processes I need to learn about. These are the ones that I'm deploying that are unhelpful. Here's how I can best, you know, develop my own life and create a positive trajectory. 
Because when people have positive trajectories, they don't come in for therapy. That's called living. We all have that help. It's not one out of five. It's five out of five after two years of COVID. We all know that. So stop categorizing people and shove them into cubby holes. Instead, let's figure out how to empower our own lives. And by the way, that's the vision that I had when I was a high school student and kind of implicitly and this idea that we could come up with psychological knowledge that would go all the way up to these deepest issues that our artists and dancers and novelists and so forth are uh, talking about or painting pictures about or dancing about or writing music about. So um, I am trying to develop the tools to help us as a profession get out of simply bell curves and standard deviations, treating people as error terms and more treating people as individuals. Well, I like your approach and I wish you luck doing that. It's going to be difficult because one critic could say, well, what's the use of that? Because then you can't generalize to other people and apply it to other people. And your argument might be exactly, that's exactly what we're trying to avoid. Well, no, not what I'd say is okay. no. What can be generalized are the processes. I mean, if you come oh, okay. behavioral tradition, let's say a principle like reinforcement, mm -hmm. it's one animal at a time, one behavior at a time shows it. It applies to an incredibly broad number of things. It can be overapplied. It's not everything, but it's a lot. And so could we figure out a way? And so we don't even have words for that. Do you know the word normal wasn't in the English language and, and used with any regularity at all until the Civil War? Yeah. It wasn't. And what was driving a lot of this was not just bell curves and standard deviations, but eugenics. Mm -hmm. I don't have time to unpack this, but I, you know, the early statisticians were mostly eugenicists. And so the psychology of individual differences was more about who to sort people into those who should be having more children than those who hadn't. Mm -hmm. And it's been contaminating our science for a long time. The, no, the word we made up instead of normative or normal is idiomic. It has to start with the individual, but we then have to look at the commonalities, but only if that helps us see the individual even more clearly. Okay. And those are the new concepts and new statistical methods. It's at so much at a cutting edge, it would take another hour conversation to explain what it is. But I'm just saying, you asked me, what am I into? What am I excited about? Uh, well, in the last, Six weeks, we developed two brand new statistical methods that didn't exist on the planet before that are working wonderfully and showing us really cool things. So I'm excited about the idea of continuing the journey that I've been on for my entire life and with my colleagues, because groups matter. You can't do this alone. That's why I focused on those associations. Um, you know, I, I was a political organizer before I was a graduate student. And my mentor, a guy named Ed Koopel, taught me the only thing that really matters as a way of change is groups. The group has to care. We have to care. You don't do it one at a time. You do it in community. That's the kind of species we are. So i am really been interested in creating community around this effort of processes that we can use and deploy and put into people's lives around the world. And that's uh, what gets me up in the morning and allows me to say a happy yes when you say, would you spend an hour talking to <laughs> people who are considering being a psychologist? 
uh, say yes, not just yes, but hell yes. Of course, I'll spend that hour. Well, of course, I appreciate that. And I sense and, and feel your passion. I remember when I was going through my uh, graduate work and I developed a new um, measurement test for those you mentioned desensitization. I trained in desensitization for speakers uh, for a long time while I was in grad school and then uh, even after that. But then I came up with a, a um, measurement for receiving apprehension as well and how to measure that. So I was excited because nobody had come up with that. And uh, I, 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 that just brought me back to, you know, my feelings when I was uh, developing that measurement when you were describing everything. So thank you for sharing that. Near the end of, oh, go ahead. Well, no, I'm saying, and no matter how you enter into the world of psychology, you're going to have an opportunity to be that broad. That's the kind of field that we are. And so you can be interested in basic issues, applied issues. When you're doing your clinical work, you'll see things that the basic folks won't see, mm -hmm. uh, et cetera. So uh, when we find a way to come into community and talk to each other, the whole field has moved forward. And with that, I, the hope is, is that we're moving humanity forward. That's the game. Yeah. I like it. I like it. Overall goal. Keep that in mind. A lot of people lose focus and say, oh, I got to turn this in you become so focused on this instead of looking at the overall macro uh, level of, of uh, what you're doing and how it's moving research forward. At the end of most of our podcasts, we usually ask a few fun questions. So even though I've already identified some unique things about yourself, I'm going to open up the opportunity for you to tell me something unique about yourself. Oh, golly. Uh, well, how about this? Uh, I have four children. Uh, the oldest is turning 52. The youngest is just turned 17. And they're spaced in such a way I will have had children in the home when little Stevie goes off to college for dependent on me in the developmental period for 55 straight years, wow. which sets a world record. I've, <laughs> it does take multiple wives to do this. I don't recommend it, but it's been a wonderful journey. I love being a dad. I love the kind of things kids like doing. I've got three boats. I've got a motorhome. You know, I like to play. And so uh, a thing that people may not know about me, just hearing those numbers and thinking, oh, golly, Steve, get a life. Uh, you know, do you do anything else? Yeah, I do some other things. I, I like to play with my kids and be proud of their achievements. And um They've all grown grown up, and this latest one looks like he's gonna to be really uh, adults that I'm proud of. So uh, that's interesting. I I am a mo I love motorcycles, and I have to ask you this: How come you haven't exercised your right to get that motorcycle <laughs> back? I read someplace you had to give it up because Jackie, your wife, said, "Hey, you got to give it up." And then when Stevie is uh, 14th birthday, 14. then then you can get it back. Now 17. So as a 14, <laughs> I can buy the Harley. But now I've become so much focused on energy use and, and so forth. I, I think I might need an electric motorcycle. I, I don't want to do an electric bike. I like my bike uh, just efforting up those hills. But I, I may do the electric motorcycle. And I've got my Tesla to drive around in. So I haven't right. exercised the option to get my bike back. But for years, it was the only transportation. My eldest is now 52. When I would take her, even in ice storms, snowstorms, et cetera, to preschool, she'd be on the back of my bike clinging <laughs> to her life as I drove her around Greensboro, North Carolina in those early days. So yeah, I love, I, I call it sickle therapy. Yeah. If you ever, if you have a motorcycle and you drive, uh, A, you know they're dangerous. 
everybody's had a near-death experience. B, you know what sickle therapy is. If you're upset about something, go out and get on your bike. And uh, within minutes, you're in the environment and the smells and the sights and the feeling in a way that just grounds you and uh, reminds you of life itself and, uh, you know, that you're alive and it's wonderful to be here. Yes, yes. Um, another question that I usually ask is, what is your favorite term, principle, or theory, and why? Uh, I think the single most important term theory or whatever is uh, evolution. And I'm saddened and I'm gratified. I'm saddened by the fact that it was turned into a name for genetic changes only. Mm-hmm. You know, the selfish gene, etc. that gene dominant era but it's not that it's how complex systems evolve that includes you within your lifetime as well as species as well as cultures as and so forth so i'm an evolutionist through and through and um, learning how healthy variation selection and retention in context can apply to your life but also to the life of your culture your group your nation the world is uh I think the most important concept, uh, the most interesting and flexible one. Uh, I'm a Darwinian. Okay, sounds like it. If you had the time and money to complete one project or go on one trip, what would you do? The one project I would love is how to uh, apply what we've learned about the statistical problems inside normative categories with a theory called ergodicity. Uh, proven science and physics for 100 years, only 15 years that's even been known in behavioral science, but it's central. And I believe that uh, the early decision by Wundt and others to turn towards individual differences and bell curves and standard deviations was a fundamental error. And that we need to go back to more where the humanists were, those the Maslow types, et cetera, but now with the best tools of science. And uh, so I, if I had the money, I would put it into the uh, develop, developments that we need in emotion, cognition, sense of self, motivation, overt behavior, perspective taking attention all these psychological processes and figuring out how to measure the strength of them within the lifetime of the individuals and to empower uh, empower them and develop the statistical tools and analytic methods we're going to need to do that i basically have reached the conclusion that a large percentage of what psychology is doing in research is wrong it's statistically wrong and it's irretrievably wrong and um, that's a little late in my life to come to that realization. So it was two years ago when I first learned about the ergodic theorem and realized, oh, holy beans, it's, mm-hmm. it's wrong at the level of assumptions statistically. So if you don't know what I'm talking about, uh, well, you can uh, get my newsletter or follow what I'm doing and you'll see what I'm doing. It's in process-based therapy. And I wish I had the money and the time. I don't have the money and I probably won't have the time. I'm 74. So I've got to take time uh the the deities give me and uh and do my best well speaking of time we want to wrap this up i have two final questions number yeah. one is do you have any other advice for those interested in the field of psychology follow your heart it's what's gonna move you forward but 
what's going to really make a difference inside your discipline is what you'll have as skills in your head and hands. So you're going to have to learn. And that means you have to admit ignorance. And that means you have to be open to, to new things and be curious. Uh, so don't let that source of passion uh, out of slip away and be beaten out of you. Somebody tells you you have to be interested in this or have to do that. If it's not interesting, just don't do it. Mm -hmm. And you're looking at somebody who was stubborn enough. And I got evaluations early on saying you will be a dilettante and you will never about amount to anything. I literally still have the evaluations where I got no raises year after year. And the, the powers that be told me I was doing it wrong. And I said, I don't care. It's of interest to me. And eventually all came together. And then eventually people thought it was really cool, but that was 20, 30 years later. So if you're a rebel, if you're an individualist, if you have a sense that you want to go into psychology to do something really deeply important to you, you found the right field, do it that way, but do it in that way that also allows you to be humble enough to learn and to change. Uh, but don't let go of your heart, dude. Very good advice. Steve, is there anything else that you want to discuss or bring up in the podcast? No, I think uh, maybe I could just say this one thing. Um, the wonderful thing about being a psychologist, all these things that we've explored. But there is one other thing, which is we're still a baby. Psychology is a baby. It's a baby as a science. It's a baby as a profession, maybe not by years, but by maturation. Why? Because this is one of the hardest areas of science. Issues like consciousness and what does that really mean or why it's so hard to be human and why it's so easy to run into mental health problems. These are, these are way beyond physics, chemistry, some of, in terms of complexity, way beyond. So if you've got the heart for it, you know, you're in an area where you can really make a lasting difference. I'm back to the first thing, you know, the yeah. science part and the practice part by focusing on human complexity. If I can share that the ACBS has a, a motto. And here, here's our motto. It's not a declaration of achievement. It's uh, creating a behavioral science more worthy of the challenge of the human condition. And so I just leave it as my parting thought that you're off into an area where there's so much to learn that your heart, your head, your hands can make a powerful difference that could be felt around the world even. And uh, there's not many fields where you can say that. And so come on, the water's fine. Jump on in. I'll leave with those words, Steve. Thanks again for sharing your story and your journey, as well as your advice and, and funny stories with us. Well, thanks so much, Brad, for the opportunity. Thanks for listening to the Masters in Psychology podcast. If you want to learn more about our guest or listen to other podcasts, you can visit our website, mastersinpsychology.com, where you can search through all of the schools in the United States that offer advanced degrees in psychology. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And remember, if you enjoyed this podcast, please like, follow, or share.